You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Gospel of John. Gospel of John in chapter 4. Find ourselves in verse 46, chapter 4. As you're turning there, just want you to be aware of a, a couple things. Uh, first of all, uh, we are, my family and I are going to be gone uh, this coming week. We're going to leave tomorrow. We're going to go spend some time with my side of the family. And then from there, we're going to go spend some time with Desiree's side of the family at a different place. So if uh, you think about us, pray for us. There's a, a number of different things in your bulletin. Uh, one, there is a, uh, a QR code that you can scan. There's a couple different ones there. Uh, take note of those. You can scan those with your phone's uh, camera app. One gets you to the sermon notes uh, that you can fill out on your phone. You can save it, send it to your, yourself later. You can do a, a lot of things there, uh, including... Uh, see the Bible verses in front of you and things like that. It's, it's a really neat thing to explore. Also, uh, you can take and, and tear this off and fill this out and put it in the, the offering box that's in the foyer table on your way out. If you don't want to do that, you can scan the other QR code there and, um, and fill out that online and send it that way. And there's a number of ways to, to get to that. You can scan the QR code. You can actually just uh, text uh, the um, text. I think it, yeah, you can text the word connect to 888-410-5007 and it will send you a link to that too. So a number of ways that you can get there to connect with us. We would love to have you do that. So let's pray together as we approach God's word. If you would, uh, stand with me. Let's read uh, this text and then we'll, we'll pray. Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to, to gather together, to, to stand here, to approach and read your word. Lord, we, we pray that you would guide our service. We pray that, that you would be here, that you would work in, in ways that, that we couldn't imagine. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to see and understand the, the text that is before us. We pray that your spirit would guide us and lead us into truth. We pray above all things that it is the name of Jesus that would be exalted and glorified this morning. Lord, we, we thank you for our church. We thank you for those who, who continue to, to give. We thank you for the, the generosity of your people, Lord, and we pray that you would continually use our, our church, put your hand upon our church, that we might be a, a blessing in our community and to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that, that you would bless those who, who give this morning. Lord, I pray that you would just take what is given this morning and, and use it, that your name would be glorified. Lord, we think of those who are, those who are sick, those who are ill, those who are dealing with times of tragedy and suffering. Lord, we pray that in, in every case that is coming to our minds, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would be there, that you would uh, walk those through difficulty, that you would be the, the source of, of strength. Lord, I pray that you would work in each and every situation to bring healing. Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things, that you would do more than we could ever ask and imagine. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So at the very end of the, the fourth chapter of John here, which happens to be the, the end of the, the first section, really, of the Gospel of John, there's a, a reference back to John chapter 2. And if the reader doesn't grasp what John is really trying to get them to see here, he really spells it out. I want you to notice that. Once more, he visited Canaan. We're, we're told that. That should draw our minds back to a, to a question. Well, what happened at Cana? When Jesus had visited there before, well, we know that. He was, uh, went to a wedding. He turned water into wine. Well, John actually tells us that. Here is the place that Jesus returned to because there is the place he turned water into wine. It's interesting that John brings this up. The reader then remembers this first miracle that was done on this joyous occasion. There, then there is this great contrast. It's almost as if it is out of place. We have this wedding on our mind, 
this joyous occasion of Jesus turning water into wine. And then we learn of this royal official whose son is sick and is dying. Now, I believe that John has drawn our attention back to Cana 1.0 and the joy of that wedding feast for a reason as he embarks and starts to get us thinking about Cana 2.0 and encounters this situation of great sorrow and anxiety. Very different than the first. One moment is joy, the other is sorrow. And the first thing that we must recognize here is that this is such as life, right? There are times of joy and there are times of sorrow. And people, all people, there are no people, they're immune from heartache and grief. Sooner or later, there will be great sorrow in your life. Perhaps you've experienced it already. Perhaps you haven't. The thing with sorrow is that it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't take into account the, the amount of melanin that's in your skin. You might be a man or a woman. But sooner or later, trials find their way into our lives. And these things are unavoidable. Sounds pretty depressing, I know, and as one commentator put it, there's enough sorrow in the world without emphasizing it, so that's not what I'm trying to do, but the purpose here is to try to to help us think how we might react when these events come into our own life. The fact is, and we've said this, that there isn't a person alive who is immune to sorrow and suffering. I've heard it put this way, it isn't if you will face suffering in your life, but it's when. Yet, when it comes, and we know it will come, it always, in every instance, takes us by surprise. We don't see it coming, and it always shakes the foundation that we always think is secure. Will these trials beat us down? Will, they, will we ultimately triumph over them? Will it be a defeat or will it be victory? We all know people who have been defeated by life's trials. It's like they get knocked down and they fail to ever really get back up. We also know people that have gone through great difficulty and emerged from it stronger and more capable to help others who are going through trials of their own. I think this last few verses in John chapter 4 really helps us as we seek to think about both joys in life and the sorrows of life. Notice in this story that we are told that there was an official, uh, a rich nobleman whose son was sick and to the point of death. So out of desperation, this official came to Jesus But before we get to that, we're told that by the author, John, that this is the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed and that he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's interesting that John refers to this as the second. Second in Cana, perhaps, but we know that this is not the second miracle. 
In John 2.23, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. In John chapter 4, verse 45, it's also a, a reference to all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, obviously making reference to the signs and miracles that Jesus had done. So here, Jesus is in Cana, the same place he turned water into wine, and now he's here again, and he's here to, to heal this official's son. I think the point is that the reader is supposed to take note of this and see these two signs side by side, to, to compare them. So let's take note of the, the similarities between the two miracles. There are a few. One commentator I read notes some interesting ones. He says, both take place on the third day. The wedding miracle happened three days after Jesus left the area of the lower Jordan River to come to Galilee. And this miracle here happened three days after Jesus left Judea to return to Cana by way of Samaria. In each miracle, there is a rebuke of the one who requested it. Jesus' mother at the wedding and the official here in the second. We also see each time that the miracle was performed, it was performed in a way that Jesus didn't have direct contact with what was acted upon. He did it. He did the miracle by simply speaking his word. And then lastly, in each account, there were persons that knew of the miracle that then believed. In the wedding story, the disciples put their faith in him. In the second, we are told that the father and all of his household believed. I'm not sure how much we are to make of all of these similarities. I will say, however, that it is very interesting. And if not anything else, we should recognize that these two stories here do fit together and that indeed John is, is coupling them here for a reason. And perhaps we see the, the reason for that when we start to look at the difference between the two. And, and obviously one scene is a joyous occasion, the other is full of trial, sickness, depression, anxiety, the prospect of death. So one is joy, the other is sorrow. And as one commentator was looking at this, he said, quote, Jesus is more than equal to either occasion, joy or sorrow. He is a place in all circumstances. If we invite him into our times of innocent happiness, he will increase our joy. If we call him into times of sorrow, anxiety, bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and joy that is not of this world. In other words, Going back to where we had just come from in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and the, the response of all of those people from the, the town that, that came to G see Jesus, their belief that, was, that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. And now we are seeing here that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world in every single circumstance. So just at the onset... Here we see that there is a, a reference to the wedding at Cana. There's a, a reason for that. The reader is to take note of both the, the similarities, the, the difference between the two miracles, even though they are similar in a lot of ways, we must recognize that they're different. One was filled with joy, the other heartache, but yet Jesus is the Savior in both, in every circumstance. And as we move on, we are told that 
this man came to Jesus, he was an official from Capernaum. He was a, a nobleman. That would be another way to put it. Now, this isn't the same word that John uses to describe Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. The, the, the way Nicodemus was described draw, drew attention to Nicodemus' authority over other people. In, in this case, the, the word that is used is, is a word that is related to, to king, the word for king. It's not king, it's like a, a lower king or an under king. Scholars think that this, in this context, that this person was probably an official in the royal court of Herod an official in Herod's court, in whatever exactly position this guy had, we know that he was uh, wealthy because he had servants. There's little doubt that he had great influence. So his, his wealth, his influence, his high position in Herod's court didn't exempt him from trial. His son became sick to the point of death. The fact is, just as the wealthy and people of influence are not exempt from the common trials of life, they're not exempt from their need for Jesus either. Now, if we think about this a little, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that miracle was only known by the disciples and the servants who told the MC at the wedding, but we know how things work and the news of that miracle spread. And we knew that, know that a, a great many from Galilee went to Jerusalem. That news of what Jesus had done had got there. Jesus did miracles in Judea. What he did there got back to Galilee. Certainly this official in Herod's court heard of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was the only chance that his son had to be delivered from this sickness. Now, the official was in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, in a town called Capernaum. Capernaum is 25 miles, four hours away from Cana. So he went, he found Jesus, he pled with Jesus, come back with me, to Capernaum to heal my son. Four-hour trip. It's the only chance my son has. Now, one of the things that I think about at this point comes from the official's faith here. And I, and I can't help but think of the, those prosperity gospel revival services, those crusades that are set up to supposedly uh, heal many people. Like a, a Benny Hinn uh, crusade comes to mind here. We know that there are many people that travel great distances to be at those crusades for the chance to be healed. They're, they're desperate people. It's such a sad thing, really, that for many, their only hope, they think, lies in the chance that this healer will choose them out of a, a crowd so that they or their loved one might be healed. And what is even more sad is that these people think that they're bringing their loved ones to Jesus. In any case, we could view the Father's faith like this. That he hears stories of Jesus, he wants his son to be healed, so he goes to Jesus. Of course, there is a difference here. The difference is that this man doesn't drag his son to Jesus. He doesn't bring him to Canaan. At these 
healing crusades, one must always bring the sick person there. The healings don't happen at a distance. Many of these people that go to these kind of things are desperate. To be more accurate, they, they have faith in faith. They believe that if they believe enough, that that belief will manifest itself in the healing of themselves or other people, the ones they love. There's a difference here between faith in faith, where I have faith in the fact that my faith will ultimately bring about my healing. There's a difference between that and the belief that Jesus Christ is able to do it, that Jesus Christ is the, the source of healing. Of course, this is the second way that we need to understand this nobleman's faith here. Jesus recognized the genuine faith that this man had in him, that he could heal his son. Now, this nobleman, this official, his faith was weak. We know that his faith was weak because apparently he believed that Jesus had to, to be there in Capernaum to heal his son. He, he wanted Jesus to come to Capernaum to lay his hands on him or, or pray for him. He, he assumed that Jesus would have to, to touch his son. Now, of course, there's instances where Jesus did touch people and, and heal them. There's also instances where people touched Jesus and were healed. Mark 5 Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood, touched the hem of Jesus' clothing, and she was healed. It is interesting that Jesus' actions here toward this official actually served to help his faith grow. In verse 48, Jesus actually issues somewhat of a rebuke to this man. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Of course, this was a, a test of the man's faith. Was he sincere? Was he just one of those ones who, who wanted to see Jesus do something miraculous? Was his faith in, in faith? Was his... The man's response to Jesus proved him to be genuine, sincere. The man wasn't offended. He didn't seek to justify himself in his action toward Jesus. He simply reiterated his need. And he said, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, he was saying, Jesus, you are the only hope for my son. Please come with me. We started this message saying that this story, this miracle helps us find victory in, in the midst of grief and in sorrow. One thing that we learn here that is so important, it is so simple, but it's so important, is that we must trust Jesus enough to act in our situation, however, in whatever way he chooses. We must trust Jesus to act in our situation, however he chooses. The Father wanted Jesus to come back that's the only thing he saw. That's how he started. That's how he reiterated. Jesus, you are the only hope to heal my child. You have to come to him. That's the solution. That's the way he saw Jesus working in this situation. Come with me before my child dies. We have a, a four-hour walk to get to him. Let's get going. And Jesus simply says, go. Your son will live. And then we read that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. 
When we're going through difficult times, when we're in, in a trial or, or suffering, we have a, a preconceived idea how God must act, how Jesus must come to our aid. The fact is, we don't get to tell Jesus the best way to act on our account. We don't get to tell the all-wise God of the universe that we know better than he does. But at the same time, we, we trust him to act on our behalf. It might not be how we would have chosen it. It might be something far more difficult in many ways, but at the same time, it is through that difficulty that we see Jesus' love and care for us in ways that we could have never imagined if we were to go in it the way we thought. Victory in the midst of sorrow happens when we trust Jesus to act in a situation how he chooses to act. Because we believe and we know that he has our best interest in mind because he does love us and he cares for us. There, there's another lesson here that we need to pay attention to when it comes to, to victory in the midst of difficulty. And, and it's closely related to the first and we need to point it out. And that is that one's faith or belief comes before the results are seen. Just think about Jesus' rebuke here of the man. He says, unless people see, miraculous, see a miraculous sign, they will not believe. Of course, this is true of most people. They, they see the, the signs and then they believe. You've heard the proverb, right? Seeing is believing. The teaching of Jesus here is that in the spiritual world, things are reversed. Believing is seeing. You see... It only when one trusts Jesus, when one believes in Jesus, they see spiritual things start to happen. Again, there are entire ministries set up operating on the seeing is believing principle. One person calls it lifestyle Christianity. This guy, he goes out on the street, he, he goes and he does miracles, he calls them. He finds people who have one leg shorter than the other, and he lengthens their leg, for instance. Of course, this is a, a charlatan's trick. There have been documentaries showing this, showing that this is uh, nothing new. It's not new to this person. But in any case, this guy goes out on the street. He does these signs. He tells people that he does them in Jesus' name. And then people are amazed and they believe that a miracle was done. And this is lifestyle Christianity. And the entire premise is that when people see, then they will believe. This is just one example. There are countless ministries and churches that have had this kind of mentality that we are right after. We seek signs and wonders because when you see signs and wonders, then it will lead people to believe. But here, Jesus offers a rebuke to this kind of thinking. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Even after this rebuke, the boy's father showed his faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't justify himself. He didn't try to explain why he had come to Jesus. He just trusted that Jesus could heal my son, that he is son. And, and Jesus then says, go, your son will live. And the man believed that if Jesus said this, his son would be healed. I, I mean, do you see what's happening? This guy thinks that he has to have Jesus come to his aid. He has to have Jesus come to his, his hometown to touch and pray over his son. And, and Jesus just throws this massive curveball. And he says, hey, just go on your way. Your son's going to be fine. 
Trust me. Your son is going to live. Did the guy say, uh, okay, but I'd feel a little bit better if you came with me anyway, just to, just to look at him. He didn't. He didn't even question Jesus' method here at all. We just read that the man believed the word of Jesus, that Jesus spoke and then he went on his way. Think about this interaction another way. If the father here was speaking to, a, to just a person, say a doctor, what have you, the, the belief of this official would have been sort of stupid. I mean, we would never call up a doctor and say, doctor, my child is, is sick. I, I mean, he's so sick, he's, he's going to die. You're, you're the only hope that, that this child has if you come and, and, and take care of him. And the doctor says, well, just go on your way. The child is going to be fine. We would find somebody else that would look at the child. We would be desperate to find somebody to treat our son. In spiritual matters, though, we're not dealing with a mere man, but we're dealing with the God-man. Jesus Christ, he is God. As one commentator said, to believe in Jesus is actually the most logical thing in the universe a person can do because Jesus is God. Just think about this story for a moment and, and how it could translate into our own lives. To believe in, in Jesus is the most effective way to find rest for the weary soul that is faced with sorrow and grief. I want you to notice something else about a story. And I, I don't know how many times that I've read this story and I didn't pick up on it. But we're told here that this father believed Jesus' word, that his child would live, and then he went on his way. Where was his way and what was he doing? The word here that is used in, is used in the, the imperfect tense, and it implies that the, the father believed Jesus here in such a way that he simply just picked up his work where he left off and he continued to go about his business. That's the idea. Now, we don't know what exactly that was, but we do know that he didn't rush back home. We know that it was 25 miles from Cana to Capernaum where the sun was. We also know that it, was about an hour, that it was about one in the afternoon when Jesus had this conversation with this father. We get this from the story when the father asked the servants when the son began to get better. But notice that the father didn't get back home until the next day. And when he did return, it was only then that he learned his son was healed the day before at the same time that Jesus spoke to him. And then he told this to his family, and his family believed. It's really a marvelous story about trusting in Jesus, about relying on him, knowing that he is able to do, and trust that he knows what he is doing and he knows what is best. There are a few ways in which we can apply this story to our lives, to our own experiences. Although, 
From what we've said, I think some of this is going to be very obvious, but just think about it for a moment with me. First, James Boyce says that when it comes to this passage, if Jesus acted as he did with this man in the story, and if his actions actually had the effect on him that the Bible tells us they did, then Surely, Jesus is the answer to our anxieties as well. I think what Boyce is getting at here is that when this man came to Jesus, he was very anxious. He was desperate. And when he left, he just went on his way without any evidence that Jesus had actually done anything. In talking with Jesus, his anxiety began to disappear. The more he trusted Jesus to do what was right, the more he knew that Jesus would take care of things. The fact is, sometimes the burden that we bear seem unbearable. The weight seems to be crushing us. But if this story is is true, and it is, then we should come to Jesus and and talk to him about it. We're not guaranteed that Jesus is going to grant our wish. Jesus isn't a, a genie. But we do know that the more we come to him, the more our anxiety will fade. A second way that this passage can be applied is that Jesus may very well ease our burden He may very well ease our anxiety in the midst of trial, but we also may not see results right away. In fact, we might not even see results in this life. When we trust Jesus, the all-wise God of the universe, with our grief and our sorrow, with the situations of life, he will bring us comfort. He will ease our anxiety. But this doesn't mean that the child always lives in the end. This doesn't mean that the diagnosis will always end in healing in this life. It doesn't mean that nothing bad will ultimately happen to a believer. When we come to Jesus, we find him telling us that he knows what he is doing and he will work it all out in the end. We have that guarantee, even if we don't understand it. In Romans 8.28, we read that God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, we know that this is true. God will work all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we may not see it or understand it on this side of eternity. But just knowing that truth gives us great confidence and eases anxiety but that doesn't change the reality of it. That God knows what he is doing. I remember a movie, a scene in a movie, it was called uh, Deep Blue Sea, a movie about sharks. There's one small scene in that movie where there's two guys, they're, they're uh, there in the water and they gotta, they gotta perform some task together and, and one guy says to the other, do you trust me? And then they they go out to talk about this and he says, but you should trust me because I am trustworthy. I've never forgotten that line because that is how it is with God. We, We trust him because he's trustworthy. Not because we're going to see him 
work things out the way we desire it right now, but because even if we do not see him working things, we do have confidence that he is working things out for our good. And we know that this is true. A final way that one can apply this is that these truths here are for everyone. Last time we were uh, together in, in the book of John, we, we made this point that the gospel is for everyone. Boyce asked the question here. He says, when it comes to the end of this first section of the gospel, he asked this question. What has John done in the first section? Well, let's just think about this. What has he done? Well, he is showing us Jesus' work in Judea, in Samaria, in Galilee. He's interacted with rich people, with poor people, with educated people, uneducated people, with Jews, Samaritans, religious leaders, with those with no religious orientation at all. Jesus has shown himself to be the light of the entire world, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Savior of the world. And in other words, we've seen here in, in this passage, in this book so far, that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever situation you're in in, in life, joyous time, Cana 1.0, Or maybe it's Cana 2.0. Time of suffering and anxiety. Time of stress. The offer of Jesus is the same. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you believe that I am indeed the light of the world? Do you believe that I am, I am the savior of the world? Do you believe that Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? In Isaiah chapter 1, there's a, a plea to come. It says, come, let us reason together. It says that though your, skin, though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Although they're red crimson, they should be like wool. Jesus says, Come. Those, those of you who are burdened by your sin, those of you who are struggling, Jesus says if you have if burdens, if you're weary, that you can come to him and find rest for your soul. The fact is, it is only Jesus that can save. You see, we're all like that dying child in the story more than we would like to admit. We all, because of our sin, are dead in our sins, and the only solution is Christ, to trust in him. Here's what I love about the story. I love this story because we are told, in the end, that the entire household believed. We skip past that a lot. Yeah, it's cool the household believed. But who does the household include? The household includes the son that was healed. Jesus wasn't even there, but the father knew. He told the story, and when he found out what Jesus had done for him, he believed. 
He recognized the, the, the favor that, that Christ bestowed on him. And his response was to trust in him. I wonder, when you think about the fact that Jesus died the death that you deserve to die, that Jesus took the place for your sin, that he died for you, he was then raised victoriously over death that you might live forever, that your sins might be as cast as far as the east is from the west, that the righteousness that you have and your own cannot save you. Your only hope is to flee to the mercy of Christ Jesus. When you recognize that, that Jesus has done all of that for you, what will your response be? I hope it's like the child in the story. To trust him, to believe in him, to place your faith in the savior of the world. That's our message. That's the message that we believe, that we hold dear, and that we proclaim to the world around us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much that you are Savior of the world, that you're not a Savior of a, a certain group of people, but, but anyone that would come and, and place your, their faith in you, that you are the savior of the world in, in any different circumstance that we find ourselves in. That today is the day of salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.